In a time when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 62 of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Patrick, and as always, I'm here with my friend and co-host Aaron. Hello! This week, we are taking a look at David Fincher's Oscar award-winning film, The Social Network, one that, to some, is considered a masterpiece in screenwriting, and to others, well-made schlop. Aaron, how are you doing this week? Patrick, (laughs) I am good, and I am shocked that anyone could consider this anything other than a masterpiece. Uh, Schlop is definitely not the word that I would use to to (laughs) describe it, but we can talk about why, right? That's why we're here. Uh, maybe maybe there's something we can pull out of this that would make us think that I'm 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 hesitant to say that will be the case though. I'm I'm doing good, man. Um, I have had a busy week, busy weekend of movie watching. Been just kind of vegetating on the couch a lot the last few days, trying to save money before my long vacation that's upcoming. Uh, when you're going on a big trip, and especially with a cruise in the middle, every penny matters. <laughs> so um, it's been a great time for me to just catch up on a whole lot of TV and movies. And since that's normally what we start with, uh, why don't I, do, do you, how about you? Why don't I ask you first? Have you seen anything recently? Because I know sometimes it's harder for you to get in extra stuff each week. Yeah, not having a screener pass keeps me out of a theater. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you and I both know that uh, we lost a, a well-known figure in Hollywood, Adam West, this week. And uh, just like we did with Gene Wilder, I wanted to revisit the thing that made him incredibly famous, his role as the Dark Knight himself, Batman. But of course, this Batman was a little bit different than the one we've come to know and love. I uh, I don't know if you know this, I actually own the original 1966 TV series. I did of, not. Uh, I did not no. know that. That is awesome. Yeah. This was one that, uh, when we go back to our almost famous episode, I was actually, you know, when I claim I was born in the wrong decade for music, that kind of extends to television as well. My dad and I, I, I remember a lot when uh, when this series was on, I don't know if it was on Nick at Night, but it was on a, on, a, on a TV network that showed old episodes of different things. So I grew up watching television shows that my parents were very much familiar with. And Saturday nights, uh, for, for a good while when I was in junior high, they would show syndicated episodes of this this tv series and for some reason i just gravitated towards it i was like this is interesting i know who batman is but i i don't know who this this bat toosy guy in this bright colored environment with these angled <laughs> cameras and and sets are and i remember just falling in love with it and looking forward to saturday nights when i wasn't doing anything social which was quite often, considering I didn't have much of a social life, uh, I would spend hanging out with my dad watching reruns of this TV series. And I remember thinking several things, uh, looking back on it, and why I eventually bought the the DVD set. I can appreciate a property that has the ability to sort of make fun of itself. I know that I can, as much of a Superman fan as I am, I can definitely appreciate the iterations of Batman that we've seen, particularly with Chris Nolan. And so it's it's neat to be able to see a TV series that really kind of leads into the campy side of what The Dark Knight is all about. Um, 
there were things about just even down to his his costume being more of the blue and the yellow and the gray as opposed to the black and yellow and the that bright, kind of stuff. The bright knight is what uh, the bright, he's yeah. affectionately called. <laughs> yes, exactly. And just really embracing the onomatopoeias of the bam, pow <laughs> action sequences, having a sidekick like Burt Ward who or slash Robin, who we have grown to love his little uh, holy insert, you know, quippy line here, Batman. And I, I think what the 66, the 1960s TV series did was it, it in, in a lot of ways, it epitomized the decade, at least what, what my dad tells me. But it also brought about a different way of showing this character. We're so used to seeing him as the dark brooding guy. And this is a nice take on him. This is a really fun way to, to look at him in a way that is sort of approachable to get to know some of his rogues in a more lighthearted way. I, um, I, I loved all of the actors that played the various villains uh, in particular. I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but the guy that plays the Joker, Burgess Meredith, of course, playing the Penguin. And so, so being able to watch a few of these episodes recently in light of his passing really kind of made me smile. I enjoyed reliving that. Um, at some point, I'd like to sit down with my dad and watch a few of these episodes with him. I think that would give him a kick. Uh, we've got Sing Street to watch first. That's first on the priority list of things that he and I are going to try to watch together. We've been trying to do that for the last two or three months. And so uh, that's first, and then maybe a couple episodes of Batman afterwards. Your dad is really far behind. On Facebook today, I saw that he was watching Beauty and the Beast, the animated movie, for the first <laughs> time in his life. I was like, that's that's not indicative of like where he's at. Like he's so not he's, living he, in the. He's not actually any, all the way 90s. back to ninety one. Like trying to catch no, no, up. No, no, okay. No, no. No, he's seen say, things like Twister. He's seen the Mission Street's Impossible. Street's a tall order. If that's the case, you may not. No, no, this, <laughs> I gave him three movies on Blu-ray. I'm letting him borrow three of my three of my uh, three of my movies: Sing Street, uh, Creed, and uh, gosh, now I can't remember the other one. But I said you can watch the other two, but do not watch Sing Street without me. And so when I go over and we watch Sing Street, I'm going to bring over uh, the first season or the first oh, few man. episodes of Batman and watch that. So That is exciting. I, yeah. I love – sorry. I think that that's uh, additionally awesome because your dad is a music guy as well, and I know you get that from him because he's a music leader, a worship leader at church, and a guitar player just like you. And so I can imagine the kind of amazing bond you would have to watch those together, kind of like – when I was just uh, coming out of high school and I just joined the Navy and I would watch war movies with my dad who was a Marine. And so we had a, a unique kind of experience watching those kind of movies together. So I, I think a music film like Sing, Sing Street is going to be just a, a, a awesome, awesome experience for you two. Definitely looking forward to it. Hopefully this week if we can. Well, I might need to watch a couple of those Batman episodes with you when I'm in town because I did not know you had this series. Um, you know, it's interesting you bring this up um, with Adam Adam West's passing and the news of that. I think it was was it Saturday morning that I found out or we found out. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, too, um, wanted to pay homage and, and kind of celebrate Adam West in some way. I had most recently watched Lego Batman again a couple days ago, before that, and so <laughs> I was full-on back in my Batman love, man. And by the way, Patrick, let me tell you, it's the first time I've seen it since the theater. 
it all came rushing back to me. The moment that that opening sequence and screen starts for Lego Batman when it's black and and Kevin <laughs> and he just starts talking. That movie is absolutely still top five of the year for me at this point. And I, I don't know where so it's going to land, man. but it is so good. And and as a, as a Batman fan, I just, gosh, I love it. Listeners, if you've not heard our episode on this movie, if you're just now getting around to watching it, we did cover Lego Batman um, back when it first came out in theaters. Look back in the archives for that one. It was a great conversation. We had so much fun um, mm-hmm. because both of us really loved it. So, anywho, Lego Batman pays a lot of tributes as well to all the different iterations of Batman uh, over time, including the one that you just watched. I found on Netflix Batman the Movie, which is the same same characters same uh i think it spawned the tv show if i'm if i'm not mistaken it did and yeah. uh so it was on netflix and i fired that up and i rewatched that and wow i <laughs> the camp oh the camp um you know there is I, I do not a big fan of camp nowadays um I, there's there's a very small amount that i'm willing to put up with um i don't know that i would ever watch something that is current in the same vein as Batman, the movie or the Batman, the TV show, the 1966 version, but rewatching it was an absolute joy. I had a smile on my face. I was laughing out loud. I couldn't help, but just, just giggle like a little boy as Batman's punching this very, very obvious plastic shark dangling from his leg while he's on the bat ladder and getting the, uh, bat shark repellent (laughs) i mean just there's so much about this film that cracks me up and what you really see is a very unique sort of comedic timing between adam west and burt ward that most that no batmans really have had since then i mean we don't see batman as a funny guy other than lego batman being really probably the first one since that's that's intentionally funny um, the rest of them are, are much more, much, much more brooding. Uh, but, you know, Batman the movie gave us so many classic lines, um, one of which, of course, being, <laughs> some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. <laughs> and, uh, it, you know, I really enjoyed watching it again and seeing Adam West and remembering how great he was. Like you, I grew up on the TV show as a kid, watching it on uh, syndicated reruns and fell in love with it. It was one of the, the things that really sparked my interest and, and started my started me down the road of Batman become my favorite superhero. So I think it's kind of cool that we both watched those 1966 versions separately uh, on the same, same time. Yeah, and you know, when you mention the Lego Batman movie, what's interesting is that the Lego Batman movie does for us today what I think Batman 66 did for that generation in terms of how the character is is taken in a tongue-in-cheek type of way. Bat- Lego Batman is very much self-aware, so is Adam West's Batman. And I love the unapologetic style, the unapologetic approach that these two properties have when it comes to their, uh, their respective uh, Batmans, if you will. And I think that's why I appreciate the 1966 version was because it wasn't out to try to be something different. It was out to try to celebrate through a different style. 
and through a different form of of you know of comedy in this case instead of drama. Uh, up till then, I don't know what other proper other Batman there. I don't think there were any Batman TV shows or movies, particularly outside of that. But there um, was a. I found one on Netflix or Letterboxd when I was searching uh, this up, and I saw that there was a Batman serialized thing that came out of Europe or Asia or something in the 1930s, and it okay. had just horrific reviews. So um, <laughs> I, I'm gonna have to check it out at some point just because I want to see it all but this was this was really the first time that batman became mainstream for sure for sure well i'm glad you got a chance to watch it i think i'm gonna try to add that movie at some point to either my library or the the voodoo library Uh, i don't know if you'd want that (laughs) kind of sitting next to things what a silly question that is we already have lego (laughs) batman batman 1989 and the dark knight why well we need to complete the collection Lego Batman isn't up there quite yet. It'll be there probably in the next couple of weeks, but it, it needs to. It'll be a shock, Patrick, if I wait for you to buy the Blu-ray because I'm ready to. <laughs> I just watched it a couple nights ago, and I'm ready to watch it again. And I got, I'm I'm going to get tired of renting it, so I may <laughs> okay. just buy this sucker <laughs> up for. I may buy my own Blu-ray copy because I need it. I needed more of Lego <laughs> Batman in my life. You need you need more, you need more Will Arnett talking about how the password to the Batcave is Iron Man sucks, right? <laughs> Iron Man sucks. <laughs> it's amazing. Well, as much as I'd love to keep talking about campy Batman, that's not what we're talking about this week. We are talking about the Social Network, which maybe it could have Batman in it, but you know, I don't think so. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. I mean, if, I was trying to make a. I was trying to think of a good reference, like Mark Zuckerberg is Batman and Eduardo is Robin, but <laughs> those guys, you know, Batman and Robin would not have gone to Harvard, I don't think. Um, anyway, well, before we get into all of that, just want to give you a quick uh, standard spoiler alert. We're going to be spoiling the heck out of this movie. This came out what in two thousand the the aughts the the mid aughts early to mid aughts <laughs> maybe two thousand eight. I don't remember. Uh, when was it seven or eight yeah okay so. so yeah so the statute of limitations is you know kind of passed on that but in case you haven't seen it go ahead and do yourself a favor rent it buy it borrow it from a friend and then come back and hear what will hopefully be a pretty interesting discussion spoiler warning there's this thing called facebook and if you didn't know that <laughs> well get out from under the rock you're under 2010 and, patrick we were wrong so wow I have to correct us. And even from... <laughs> Otherwise, well, someone yeah. will go post about us on Facebook and talk smack. Gosh, it's like Inception. <laughs> you know, anyway. <laughs> um, that being said, let's go ahead and get into it. So um, first question, initial reactions from watching it. What, uh, what, were your, what was your takeaway, emotionally speaking? How did, you, how did you respond to this? First time or rewatch, whatever. Well, the first time that I saw this, I actually fell into one of the two camp, a, a different one of the two camps that I fell into more recently. And we're going to talk about this in detail, how there are there are really two types of people when it comes to watching biopics. There is a group of people who are perfectly okay with creative liberties that have been taken and don't expect a story to be a documentary. <laughs> and then there are people who want accuracy in their characters and not getting accuracy takes them out of the moment and they're not able to appreciate a film that is frankly just not true or 
really exaggerating actual events. So at the very first time I saw this film, I fell much more into the frustrated about it not being accurate side of things. Um, I did love it, and I thought it was very, very good then. I still thought it was, for me, a five-star film. It was fantastic. But I remember that kind of lingering in my head. I most recently rewatched this several months ago just on a whim, um, and then I watched it again before this episode. And I am firmly in the other side now where it does not bother me. And so I have come to completely embrace this movie and everything about it. It, Not just the things that I initially fell in love with and what I fell in love with the first time around was the writing. Huge Aaron Sorkin fan, as we know you are as well. Um, Writing is my number one draw for a film, I think. If you can give me good writing, whether it's witty, whether it's, you know, technical, just good, solid dialogue, I will be zoned in and locked to you and and pay attention to your film and and get right there with the characters. And that's what this movie does. Aaron Sorkin is a master at that, and this is a masterpiece when it comes to a script, in my opinion. So for that reason alone, I fell in love with it. The story is compelling. I think it puts so many awesome elements together, whether it's the music, the way it's shot, the acting. I think it's all great, and I just... Really, really love it, man. I loved it even more this last time around. It was already in my top 100 movies of all time. I think it was in my top 50 movies of all time. And I see no reason for it to ever go out of there. Good stuff, man. I, I think if I had to pick an emotion to describe my initial takeaway, it would be one of intrigue. I think this was a film that I watched late. I didn't watch it when it came out. Uh, this is one of the first films that I remember. You were watching, watching MySpace the movie, weren't you? I was. I was watching the the, the rise and fall of MySpace. Sorry, sorry. Uh, available now on Netflix. Not really. <laughs> it was on probably Facebook. a documentary <laughs> on Facebook. Yeah, wouldn't that be funny? But I remember looking at watching this movie after the fact, probably maybe a year after it was given its accolades at the Oscars and being sort of intrigued by the whole Facebook thing. Cause I was big into social media, Facebook. I grew up in the latter part of my college career connected with Facebook and, you know, seeing how it's grown from there has been really interesting. But the approach of the story interests me because it's kind of mysterious. You know, we're getting, we're getting a, a factual story being told through deposition. So it's heavy dialogue. Um, at the time I wasn't, as familiar with Aaron Sorkin as I am now, I hadn't yet experienced the magic that was the West Wing for me. <laughs> I'd end up watching that in hindsight. So being introduced to the social network was was really interesting to me because that's something I noticed was, man, there's a lot of talking in here. I mean, like, there's no quote action. There are no, there's no. I mean, there might be a couple of fight sequences, but it's like a punch here or maybe that kind of stuff. But Watching it again and watching it with the with the appreciation, like you mentioned, of seeing it as a story to be told instead of a historical documentation really elevated it for me. And it, I, I think I want to say it was this one or another film that provoked me to find out more about the facts. It was based on a book called The Accidental Millionaires by the same guy who wrote... Um, 
gosh, uh, it's the it's the book that the movie Twenty One is based off of about the MIT guys or whatever. Anyway, good movie, but I can't help you with the book. Yeah, I've I've read both of them actually, and what I knew after the fact after reading the books was that you know it's very much a tale that's told from one person's point of view. Uh, Eduardo Savron is the main source for Ben Mesrick, the author of the book for the accidental billionaire. So after watching the movie, reading the book and going, doing some fact checking, I was a little concerned. Cause like, wait a minute, something's not right here. There are some things that weren't completely accurate. There are some things that were taken sort of a little bit more liberally. And I think it was the first movie that I began to think, okay, are we doing a disservice to the people involved in the actual events by creating false <laughs> events, false facts, or as a creative person like Fincher, are we crafting a story that we're trying to tell using these guys as pieces? Is that right or is that wrong? And so these are questions that I constantly ask myself when it comes to biopics, when it comes to based on true story versus inspired by actual events. Um, those kinds of things are really I'm still bothered by them. I, I go back and forth. I love a number of movies that have 90% accuracy, and I love a number of movies that have like 12% accuracy. And so I've never been able to get on board fully with one or the other. I think the general consensus that I have is that as a creator myself, I'm okay with crafting a story, using characters and leading them down certain rabbit trails but at the same time i have to think what if i was that person what if i was the, what if i was the character that the story was based off of how would that make me feel and so I, I go back and forth as far as this movie goes i kind of look at it as more of a revenge story that fincher is trying to tell instead of a here's here's the events that took place and here's what happened because when i looked at it that way I began to see, okay, there is a revenge ta tactic. You know, Mark Zuckerberg is trying to get back at this, quote, Erica Albright character because she wronged him in some ways. Uh, was that, did Erica Albright exist? Did a form of her exist in some way? You know, we can look up on the internet and see. But then there's also uh, Sean Parker trying to use, uh, trying to use uh, these guys to get back at case equity. You know, there, there are moments where these different characters are trying to get revenge on someone or there, there are revenge elements. It's not necessarily a whole revenge story, but I think at some point all of these characters find ways to try to get back at someone or the other, even, even Eduardo, you know, putting a, the hold on the account, you know, trying to, for whatever his motive is. But I think there's, there's an interest to seeing this as a revenge story, as opposed to just a, this happened and this happened and this happened. So that's kind of my take on it. Wow. Well, that is something that we <laughs> will have to address because I, I've never really considered it to be a revenge story. I've never once pulled that out of it. That's fascinating. I can absolutely see where you're making that connection. Um, I don't know that it's that way for me. I don't think that for Eduardo, I don't I don't see very much of that mm -hmm. uh, revenge factor. But I guess it, when you take it in context of the lawsuit uh, mm. being the constant throughout the film because we're bouncing 
back and forth in time with the lawsuit mm-hmm. being our focal point, um, then in a sense, yeah, I could see how even that specifically is, is very much a revenge kind of thing. It's the, the Winklevoss twins trying to get revenge for what they consider to be a stolen idea and loss of, you know, creative property. So right. that's actually pretty interesting, man. I, 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 I love that you pulled that out of it. And I mean, it's, it's worth poking holes in for sure. I don't, I don't claim to know what's happening in Fincher's head as he's writing the story, but I think he uses the events of the social network to invoke that kind of idea to make it more interesting because at the end of the day, this is just a, I mean, we could call this a story about Mark Zuckerberg and the founding of Facebook. Well, that could be done in an hour on the history channel, right? Mm -hmm. But this isn't about Mark Zuckerberg or just about him or really about Facebook. It's really about relationships, which is the foundation by which Facebook as a social network, the monster that it's become is really driven by relationships with each other. And when we look at that, when we look at relationships between Mark and Eduardo, Eduardo and, uh, and, and Mark, Mark and the Winklevoss twins, um, you know, Erica and Mark, all these things. I mean, Mark's the centerpiece for sure, but we see all these other relationships that are affected by this timeline. And so that became very interesting to me to see how, even though the centerpiece was Mark, he was sort of the, he was the, the driving force. It wasn't just about him. I think a lot of ways we saw a lot of growth or a lot more roundedness of characters through, uh, through Aaron Sorkin's screenwriting, through the, 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 the edits and cuts from the depositions between those two depositions, as well as going to flashbacks and stuff like that. And it, it created an avenue for me to begin to care more about the relationships as a whole instead of just being intrigued by the story of Mark Zuckerberg, which I think is what you get on the initial take, but not on subsequent ones. And I think that's where the rewatchability factor goes up for me. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You can you can single in on him quite easily. Um, but when you've done that once and you know how that plays out, you can turn your attention to Eduardo or Sean. I like, I like watching it with a big focus on Sean instead of just letting him exist, you know, in the periphery as a, as a side character. I like to really look at him and from the moment we first see him on screen and kind of watch his arc and see what's he really about. What's he, what's his goal? What he's trying, what is he trying to accomplish? Um, And, you know, I like to also take that with a fair amount of research. I'll admit um, when we talked about, or when we talk about this biopic, you know, decision of how you watch one, whether you need the creative liberty or hate it. um, I like the fact that they, it drives me to find out the real story, whether I find out it's true or not. um, I didn't know that Sean Parker was still worth billions and that he actually had continued on with Facebook and that he was a, still considered, you know, as a founder and had had made tons of money. I didn't know that he was a, an enormous philanthropist at this point in his life. I didn't know that he was partially responsible for the creation of Spotify, which makes sense now, you know, in hindsight. <laughs> um, so, is, it a bit, is it a bit ironic that Justin Timberlake, who plays Sean Parker, <laughs> is playing a character who once got in trouble 
by the artists that attend these Grammy things. And Justin Timberlake was probably in that, that audience of people. Do you think there's it a little is, bit of, it is funny. <laughs> it is. And and can we just talk about JT? Because I, I love JT. Yeah. JT as is probably one of the greatest crossover entertainers of my generation, of our generation. Um, I've long been an NSYNC fan growing up. They were my favorite boy band. I knew every song. I could do every dance. I probably still can. And he was amazing. I love his more soulful, jazzy, hip-hop solo stuff that he's put out on his own in recent years. And he's a genuinely great actor. Not just in this. He's great in this, but he's great in everything I see him in. I mean, the guy has it all. He's got... The charisma, he's got the looks, uh, he's got the talent, the musical, both musical and from an acting standpoint. From by all accounts, according to his wife, Jessica Beale, he is an amazing husband and just the sweetest man that you'll ever meet. So this guy, I'm just such a huge fan of JT, and I I really like that he's in this movie. I think he captures both the villainy of a Sean Parker uh, and and. I use the word villain kind of in air quotes. Uh, he's he's a little bit predator-like um, in the way that he latches on to Mark and kind of wants to ride the wave with him. Because, But he also is truly somewhat of a mentor at the same time. Like, it's not, it's not all about him. He does want what's best for what he thinks is best for Mark. But... His vision of what he thinks is best for Mark, Sean Parker's, is what he would see as being best for him. Does that make sense? Yeah, He's projecting it does. his own his own desire and his own thought of what's best onto what Mark would be best for Mark. Right. And I I I think that's why Fincher cast Justin Timberlake, because he's got that charisma, he's got that swagger that I don't know the real Sean Parker. I know that the uh, the guy Sean Parker is very successful and launched a series of very popular startups albeit some of them failed for one reason or the other but the intrigue of Sean Parker as a as a character wouldn't I don't think it would exist if a guy like Justin Timberlake didn't play him I think that what Justin Timberlake brings as a result of his his charisma as a person his ability to, I mean, his, his stage performances as a, as a musician, his ability to, I don't know if there was anything before screen wise that he acted in, but I remember watching this, not knowing much about the, the, the person of Sean Parker and thinking, man, he's just like Sean Parker. <laughs> and so there's some magic in that because I had no idea really what the real Sean Parker was like. And I thought now every time I, I hear Sean Parker's name, I think of Justin Timberlake. I don't actually think about the real guy. And I think there's something really wonderful about when you have an actor that does that. The same thing with Mark Zuckerberg. Um, I think that that we have such a such a great actor in Jesse Eisenberg who plays this guy, and I think even he's compared his Lex Luthor in Batman v Superman is basically a more eccentric Mark Zuckerberg. So that says a lot about how he brought the character of Zuckerberg to life. Um, does he look like 
Mark. I don't know. I mean, I've seen pictures of Mark Zuckerberg, so yeah, maybe. But I think what we see is these characterizations that almost give us a not really larger than life, but maybe a interpretive way of seeing these guys. Like I, I just I can't I can't think of this story without seeing these actors as these people. You know, every time I see Jesse Eisenberg, all I can see is is Mark. And even, um, even to some extent, you know, Timberlake, I've, I know him as a musician, but I see him as Sean Parker more than anything else that he's played as a, as a character. Mine is kind of the reverse of that. Every time I see the real Mark Zuckerberg, I wonder why he doesn't look like Jesse Eisenberg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the same so that, thing, the same thing happened when I Googled Sean Parker. I was like, wait, he looks kind of like Justin Timberlake, but that the, the, the reason my brain viewing it like that i'm i'm choosing eisenberg and timberlake as my zuckerberg and my sean parker which is what you're is the same thing right um, that you're getting at so what we get at is now we've we've elevated the story beyond just the facts you mentioned that you actually did some research and you found some intriguing things that whether they you, you mentioned whether they were true or they weren't i wanted to ask does that and I think you may have already said this, but does that change your opinion of the movie? I would guess that it doesn't because of what you said, but I'd like you to kind of expand on that. You know, why doesn't it change your view of the movie? Or if it does, why? Yeah, so so as I was talking about there in the opening about you know the two different ways people see biopics, and we've seen this in conversation in our Facebook group recently as well about this movie when we asked for people's thoughts. Some people said, no, I don't like this movie at all because it's fake. It's not real. These things didn't happen. Um, others said, well, it's a movie and it has to be exciting. It has to be interesting. I definitely have learned to take to lean toward it's a movie and I need it to be interesting and exciting and hold my attention. I need there to be a plot that is driving me forward. It's not a documentary. If this were a documentary and was inaccurately portraying these characters um, and claiming to be the real story beyond a shadow of a doubt, I would have a serious problem with that. But as a man who watches plenty of documentaries, there's a drastic difference in the way that these stories are told. And so I think that we have to allow creators a certain amount of liberties when they're taking real life material that has occurred and generating a story for us. Um, you know, they're taking bits and pieces of what actually happened and then they're embellishing. I do think though, or I guess I will say I understand the other side of it. It, it, it never hurts my personal mu movie viewing experience, but where I can see a slight potential problem is in the idea of does a creator have a responsibility to the actual human? Now, I know Zuckerberg has spoken out about how this is not actually him. He, I've read lots of stuff from him, and one of his famous quotes was, but they really nailed my wardrobe. Those are actually my right, my shirts right. in every single scene. 
um, that was like what he thought they got right. And he didn't think that anything else was correct. Um, how much of that is true? How much of that is he doesn't want the world to know the truth? I don't know. Um, Sean Parker's also been outspoken about not appreciating the way that he was portrayed as a villain and and kind of an a-hole, to, to put it bluntly. So I try to put myself in those those people's shoes, and I think, well, if somebody's making a biopic about me, and it is wildly inaccurate <laughs> from my actual personality, I, I might have a problem with that, you know, because the the thing about this is, and the reason there is some responsibility in the cre- to the creators is that right or wrong, the world, I guarantee you, views Mark Zuckerberg as Jesse Eisenberg's character. And very little progress is going to be made by him coming into the media and giving an interview saying this isn't true. Because those of us who don't listen to that saw this movie and think that this is Mark Zuckerberg. You know what I mean? So many people are going to believe this is correct. Many people are going to believe that Erica exists. Erica doesn't exist. What I will say about it is that I respect Fincher and Sorkin enough with what they did with this material and especially having researched it. Um, Patrick, just this weekend I looked up, I think I sent you this stuff over the weekend and I found out that his actual blog posts were on live journal. He actually had a live journal that was called Zuck on it, which, Oh my gosh, that's just amazing. Um, <laughs> Cause I used live journal when I was uh, a much younger guy, but he, I, I found him like the story is, completely taken directly from those blog posts. So, so when, when we're going through those scenes of, of Mark creating face mash for the first time, and he's blogging on the side, talking about farm animals and, you know, comparisons and, Oh, now I need to go into this dorm and okay, now I'm downloading this code. Like those are actual, the the words that are being used is the actual rip from the blog post. And one of those blog posts starts with blank is a B I T C H. And so that name is redacted, but one of the blog posts at the beginning of his actual creation of Face Mash starts just the same way that it does mm-hmm. in the story. And what that tells me is that Fincher and Sorkin said, okay, we're going to fill in that blank. Mark Zuckerberg was in a place where somebody had hurt his feelings. So why might that have been? And they created a character that they felt would have fit in that blank name that had been redacted. And when I know that, when I found that out, any and all problems with Erica existing disappear for me. Yeah. The, uh, well, my short answer is I agree. (laughs) But to to explain this too much, let me sum up as uh, Inigo Montoya would say. The, when I look at biopics, I love having these conversations because it's it's easy to it's easy to go one route or the other. It's just a movie. Deal with it. No, it's not a movie. It's real people that you're manipulating. That's true too. There's all these things that are true. I've come to kind of get to the place where as much of it I admit the influence that film has on people and the opinions that are made because of watching film. Take Wonder Woman, for example. We had a great discussion with Andrew Dice last week about the fact that we wondered, <laughs> no pun intended, if that film was being elevated beyond what it should because of the importance that it had on the elevation of women 
in Hollywood or the the, the value of, of of the female of you know feminism and things like that. And so I get that. I really do. I get the fact that film has influence. There's no doubt about it. Anytime I see something based on a true story, I immediately want to go and say, okay, what was real and what wasn't. Um, but at the same time, the purpose of film ultimately is to entertain. It's not to educate. When you watch a Ken Burns documentary, he's telling you facts in an interesting way. Even with the King of Kong, we're getting told facts in a different, in, in a, in an interesting way. These things happen. We're actually talking to the people that it happened to. So when you take something like the social network, it becomes more like a tabloid article where it's as an the actor, Esquire. <laughs> it is. Hilarious. I mean, well, I mean, and, it's a great, and, and, great comparison or a great analogy. So if, if I'm a famous person and I get filmed by the paparazzi and my picture goes up in Esquire or what, or, you know, the national Enquirer, and it says, you know, Patch was abducted by aliens, breaks up with his <laughs> his three-headed girlfriend and, you know, becomes a multimillionaire through, you know, selling green slime. I don't know, whatever. Am I going to actually go after those people and say, that's wrong? None of that happened. Well, of course not, because there's a sense of, there, there's a reputation. I get the reputation that these, you know, trash magazines have, these tabloids have a reputation for just entertainment. And that's an extreme way to look at it. But that's what the film industry is. David Fincher and company were out to create a story that was interesting. And when you have what I would consider fantastic dialogue in any other movie, that would get really, really boring really fast. But because of the interesting way in which he tells the story through dialogue, through cuts, through music, we, you and I specifically, really fall in love with this film not because it's telling an accurate picture. That's not the reason why we fell in love with it. We fell in love with it because of the fact that it's an incredibly entertaining story mm-hmm. and what it led us to in finding out more about these guys. Am I going to look at Mark Zuckerberg and think that he's a jerk? No, because I know that David Venture may or may not have taken creative liberty, but that wasn't the point. His point was not to tell an accurate story necessarily. His point was to take a story that existed that was true and to indulge it so that it's interesting to an audience. Otherwise, he would have put it on a network television uh, channel and over the course of an hour and a half interviewed Mark Zuckerberg and Eduardo Severon and Sean Parker and said, here's what really happened and found a way to edit that. But he's not a documentarian. Leave that to somebody else. And that's why I think you and I, I'll speak for you, be bold and speak for both of us and say, I really think that's why we enjoyed it is because we enjoyed the story itself not necessarily the accurate depiction of these characters, but because of the way in which we actually cared about these characters or didn't care or the way in which they made us feel, which is what film is supposed to do, right? Make so, us feel something? Absolutely. Uh, of course movie, we believe yeah. that here. <laughs> I, and listeners, I want to quickly just put out a challenge right now. So take note of this. If you're in your car, on your commute, if you're listening at home, whatever. Or on Facebook or on Facebook. If you're on, That's what I'm going to challenge you to do is both to join our Facebook group because this is a movie or a podcast about a movie about Facebook. But not only join our Facebook group, but come to the Facebook group. And I want you to fantasy cast the movie about Patrick being abducted by aliens with a three-headed girlfriend <laughs> and creating green slime and or, or building a fortune off of selling green slime. I want a fantasy cast. I want a director, a cinematographer, a writer, 
and a couple stars. So I think I think you I think listeners you guys can come up with some amazing answers to that. So come join the Facebook group and I would love to see what you guys come up with. Just put it in the comments to the uh this this episode post when you see it there. But Patrick, back to the point. I couldn't agree more. Um and I do. I love the analogy of comparing it to that kind of a tabloid. It really is. Um and Yes, the dialogue is what gets me. I, I, I stop caring about the reality of what really happened with Mark Zuckerberg, and I care about what's happening in this story instead. I don't, yeah, I, I don't, I don't, and the thing is, coincidentally, I don't lose any respect for any of these guys. I don't think Sean Parker None. in real life is the jerk that he's portrayed to be. In, in some ways, I'm intrigued to know more about him, not for fact checking, but just because. Movies have a tendency to help elevate interest in people, especially when, well, particularly when you're using real life folks. And um, I, I it just, it's, it's really, really great. So if we take that mentality, if we take it from a, a storytelling standpoint, uh, I want to dive into a couple of different themes that kind of stood out in this. There's, there's a line that Mark says to Erica at the beginning of the film. He says, there's a difference between being obsessed and being motivated. And so we kind of, it, it sets up the, it sets the stage nicely. Um, do you agree with that statement? Is there a difference between obsessed and motivated? <laughs> I do. Absolutely. I mean, <laughs> I definitely think there's a, there's a, um, there's a difference. One of my favorite quotes of all time is actually obsession is the wellspring of genius. And, I did the be- Joker say that? No, no, he did not. <laughs> Sounds like he could have, but um, I really believe that to be true. I don't think that all genius comes from obsession, but I think that obsession can be a driving force in genius. Um, you have to be obsessed to push through uh, to become a creator of things. Many, right many times, many people do not just stumble into the first idea that they have being this world altering new thing, right? It mm-hmm. takes working at their art. Um, obsessed sports athletes, um, are another good example of this. You don't, you know, I, I could go out and be motivated to do well, but being obsessed to the point that I, um, will drive my body to its absolute limits to be the best. I think is a different thing. So I think that there is definitely a line between obsession and motivation personally. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. I think that when, when it comes to motivation, motivation leads to obsession or it can. I, I think that when you have something like a character like Mark, we definitely see obsession in a similar way that we see real life people like Steve jobs. And well, again, in the way that the guy like Steve jobs is portrayed in some of these recent films that he is, is depicted in. And in some ways it seems like obsession tends to leave some bodies in its wake that people get hurt because of a person's obsession as opposed to being motivated. I might be motivated, you know, like to lose weight or I might be motivated to read a, a bunch of books or to, you know, I have a goal in mind, but when I'm obsessed with something, I think it takes over my mind. It takes over, uh, my life, I tend to sacrifice things that maybe I should or shouldn't. And in some ways, Mark epitomizes this obsession. The interesting thing here is, though, Aaron, what's he obsessed with? 
I mean, what do you think? There's, there's an obvious answer, but I think there's an underlying answer too. Within the context of this film, what is Mark obsessed with? I think he's obsessed with the praise, uh, acknowledgement of his acknowledgement of what he's accomplished. Um, well, see, I say that I, no, not it's not it's not that in the same sense. It's different because it's not like so. Mark's not not looking for public praise, okay? okay. Right, but he wants. To, he wants people to understand what he has accomplished and respect it. So maybe respect okay. is more the right word that I'm looking okay. for. He, yeah. he, he is obsessed with gaining the respect for what he has done. And, and I, I can, I, in my opinion, yeah. I, I, I can, I can see that. I mean, he, in, in the conversation with Erica, I love that he says, I need to do something substantial to get the attention of the clubs, the final clubs, not finals clubs. Final clubs, as he mentions to Erica. That's he says they're exclusive yeah. and they're fun and they lead to a better life. The bluntness of that statement, I think, says a lot about who Mark is. Because later on, when he's approached by the Winklevoss twins and he asks why he gave up what he did with the invention that it's uh, an app for an MP3 player that basically looks at all your music and basically makes suggestions uh, based on what you, uh, what you like. And he ended up uploading it for free instead of selling it to Microsoft. We can tell that he's not, he doesn't want money. He doesn't want fame. He definitely wants respect. But I think that there's something else here. I think that he wants inclusion. I think he wants to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. And whether that's done by getting, gaining the respect of people, I think that even is a little bit limited for him because I think ultimately... I mean, he wants Erica <laughs> throughout the film. There are pivotal moments where he connects back with her and is either quote inspired to do something else to advance the site, advance the, the company. And by the end of the film, here he is sending her a friend request and refreshing the page every, you know, seven or eight seconds. So I think in some ways he's looking to be accepted either by her or by Sean in some ways. I mean, he's kind of being, I mean, there are definitely scenes with him and Sean where he's feeling like a pawn, you know, the, the business cards, which I think are pretty genius. So good. But let me, he, let me ask you this. Why does it need yeah. to be accepted by his, by Eduardo? Is it just a, is it just a classic take of, of taking your, taking what you've got for granted? Do you, um, do you think they're actually best friends? I think that that idea of their best friend status, status, sorry, <laughs> didn't mean to say that, of their relationship is drawn into question, particularly when Eduardo says, I was your only friend. You had one friend. But even that's kind of an empty statement because really what was Eduardo in the relationship for? Mm -hmm. we, don't really, we don't really know a lot about their history before the moment when he launched Face, uh, face Mash. I mean, we get that there's a relationship there, but, uh, you know, I, I think that his acceptance by Eduardo is, uh, maybe it's more of a, of a, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm really kind of, I'm kind of stumped at that. I don't know. I think that I'd like to believe that they'd gone through other 
situations where Eduardo kind of stuck with him because he's kind of an outcast. I mean, he's sort of a, an outlier when it comes to social interactivity, whereas Eduardo is definitely not. As we see, one of the big themes in the film is Eduardo getting into a final club and him not. So maybe he feels elevated by Eduardo's coolness, and that's why they're friends. Maybe Eduardo sees him as someone who is valuable for some other reason. I don't really know what that reason is. What do you think? Well, I have a real hard time trying to decipher what Eduardo gets out of this relationship to. I mean, he is taken for granted at every turn. He is used as used bluntly as a money source. Um, I do think, (laughs) I think that in this film, the way that Mark is portrayed, Eduardo is as close as he can get to a real friend. Yeah, I can see that. I do think that his friendship on from his side is genuine for him. And it doesn't look like you and I's friendship or I, what we would call a normal friendship, but I do think that it's right. It is for him. And I, and that, that kind of sets in on me because there's some scenes there at the end where he's, he seems to really be sad that Eduardo didn't come out. Right. You know, you went back to New York, you didn't join Sean and I in this venture. You didn't basically, you didn't go all in with me. Right. You know, you, you never fully committed to this in the way that I did. And, and I wanted you to be here and I wanted you to go along for this ride with me, but you were unwilling to. Right. And so right. he said, you got left behind. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh, so of course that takes a turn when he gets cut out of Facebook and, and the shares get diluted and such. Um, and that's like a, just a, a Mark giving it at that point to peer pressure, in my opinion. I don't yeah. know that it's him being hateful on purpose, but yeah, I mean, their, their relationship as it's portrayed in the film is not the best idea of a friendship here. And I, and I think that if it's kind of a classic tale too, of someone like Eduardo who should have probably pulled the plug a long time ago, mm-hmm. but was too intrigued by the promise and the idea of where this could take them. But where right. it's really taking them is based on Mark. It's, it's, it's on Mark. Like he's, he's kind of riding the coattails. Yeah, I I can see that. And in some ways it makes me feel a little bit, yeah, I feel initially sorry for Eduardo because he feels like he's being dragged along. But at the same time, he's, you know, his character, Aaron is someone that I have, I, I honestly have a hard time trying to figure out because in some ways he has that cool factor in that he gets punched by the Phoenix. But at the same time, there's also the commentary about he's hanging out at a really, really like nerdy frat party, you know, that is epitomizing like where you don't want to be. And he and Mark end up getting uh, together with these, you know, hot Asian chicks as they call them. So what we see is there's almost an, there's an elevation of Eduardo, but there's also a levelized social part of, Eduardo and Mark where they're almost on a level playing field when it comes to their social, uh, social status. And I I just, I have a hard time kind of putting Eduardo in a box and saying, well, he's the cool friend to, to Mark because in a lot of ways he's not in a lot of ways he and Mark are kind of on the same social playing field. And, and that's hard for me to 
kind of put that relationship together and say, well, it's this kind of relationship because I don't know. And that may be something that I have an issue with about this film. If there, if there are things about this issue, if there's anything that I have issue with, it's that it's that I wanted more explanation or more history behind how they became friends. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know how that happened. So that may be the, the mystique of the film that Fincher is trying to include. Uh, it, it didn't obviously sway me from enjoying it as much as I did, but it did pose an issue because now I can't really put particularly Eduardo in a box. I can put all these other guys in a box and uh, you know, when I can't do that, it kind of makes my brain hurt, you know? <laughs> right. Well, well, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say there, there was another one of the quotes that um, brings up a very important topic. I think that we need to kind of hit on with this being a movie about Facebook and that is um, Erica during the amazing first scene. She says something to Mark and she says, as if every thought that tumbles through your head was so clever that it would be a crime for it not to be shared. And man, does that just open up a box of worms? Um, so we now are what? Seven years removed from this film. Mm -hmm. and 10 years ish removed from the creation of Facebook. Um, and this quote could not be more on the nose. <laughs> How many of us do this exact thing? We, we feel like the, the thought is not actually worth anything. The, the action, the experience is not worth anything unless we document it. I had a great conversation with a friend about this um, the other night, and we were talking about how you know he he had gotten caught up in this same thing where he always was so quick like he was he was trying so hard when he would be out of out of the park with his kids or doing something with his kids that he'd want to get certain shots right he'd want to get the perfect picture or he would stop them kind of from playing in the moment so they could stop and pose. And he's realized how much of a reverse effect this actually has because we're so, we feel so needy about capturing these moments so we can put them on Facebook and share them that we're taken out of actually being in that moment. We're actually hurting that moment. We're, we're forever altering the ability for that moment to be what it could be because we're too worried about remembering it. Um, and it is an awkward cycle because then we, we feel like we have to put it on Facebook. We feel like we need that social validation. And so for me, while Facebook was a fantastic idea in the beginning, um, and Mark made it very clear, like he wanted it to be not a dating site, right? He wanted it to be a connecting thing where people could meet each other and get to know each other. It's, it's become an addiction for some. And I know you and I have both in the past taken Facebook breaks where we've stopped for a month at a time just to kind of cleanse the palate and, and pull ourselves away from that need to incessantly check every time a notification pops up. Um, and I think it's something that everybody has to, as the world goes forward and as Facebook becomes bigger and bigger and a, and a, and a huge part of our lives. I mean, I say this from a place of, we this po this podcast has a discussion group on Facebook that I mentioned earlier, and we mention all the time, and we want you to come join. It is very active. There are constantly things being talked about and discussed and posted in there. But 
we all, I think, owe it to ourselves, owe it to our families and our relationships with people that are near us and in the flesh to, Mm -hmm. you know, keep in check our usage of something like this. So Facebook, Facebook, it's got, it's an amazing tool, um, but it's also dangerous. Sure. Like any social media, I think Facebook clearly takes the punch for social media in general, whether it's Instagram, which is also owned by Facebook or Twitter or, you know, Snapchat, whatever the, whatever the social media thing of the day is or of the time, there is a clear indication that these things are great tools, but they can be abused and they can be taken more as validation of who a person is. And that is, yes, incredibly dangerous. And I don't want to get into that. I think that discussion has been talked about and will continue to be talked about throughout many articles and podcasts and whatnot. What I do want to focus on is this idea of being fully present. And something that I saw in the film is kind of going back to this idea of being obsessed. I think for both Eduardo and and Mark, and this this makes sense for a company perspective. You always want to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow. And there seems to be no satisfaction in where they're at. Of course, being a film, you have to continue to kind of push the plot along. But for each one of these guys, for Sean, for Mark, for Eduardo, Eduardo saw Facebook as a way to make money. So he was ready to start dropping ads in it. And one of my favorite lines is is from Sean uh, during the during the scene at the dinner table where he's like, you, you know, a million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? And then Eduardo says, you. you. <laughs> <laughs> and then he says, you know, a billion dollars. Um, but so, so money is definitely a motive for Eduardo. I think the desire to get there first is the desire of Mark. But there's never a sense, and the dialogue plays very heavily into this, there's never a sense of rest. There's always a sense of go, 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 go. And when we talk about missing those moments, we talk about being fully present in our, quote, real lives, IRL, instead of just grabbing a picture and getting ready to post it on Facebook or on Instagram or whatever, I think that ties into it, that we don't, when when we're able to put our devices down and spend time just being fully present in the moments that we're enjoying, we're essentially forcing ourselves to stop and not necessarily say, what can I post next? How many likes can I get? Uh, there's definitely some psychological truth behind the fact that we get kind of an endorphin rush. We get this kind of uh, chemical reaction in our heads when we get like someone that says someone liked your comment or somebody laughed at it. I know that I've felt that. But I think, and I think that is echoed in the lives of each person portrayed in in this film that there's a sense of needing to be something for someone else uh, what that is specifically I think is just depending on the character you talk about but it's very reflective of what social networking in general which I'm glad they didn't call it the Facebook as the title but the social network because I think that's what Fincher is trying to do is to really call yeah. attention to to that connection I agree I thought there I thought there was a bit of irony that in the creation of Facebook, it was initially created to be something very exclusive. You know, you had to have Harvard or a whatever, an, a particular college campus email address. You had to be invited by someone to to get on it. And the irony of that is that now it's the most 
you know, you can get on and connect with anybody you want. Of course, they're, you know, it's up to the person who wants to friend you or whatever, but it's become the most open and widest, you know, open community ever when it comes to social media, even bigger than MySpace, I think in some ways. But uh, what does that say about it? <laughs> I don't know. It says a lot, but at the very least, what we see in this film is a sense of never stopping to reflect and see where we're at and take time to say, okay, let's reassess. Let's get into, let's see where we want to go from here. It, it just seems like Mark in particular was one that was sort of drawn to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And in some ways as an audience, I, I was very tired with him. I was very worn out by the end of the film because I was like, Oh man, when, when can you just stop? When you can, you just enjoy what you've created and that's hard when you create something as big as as Facebook. That's a you know? yeah, that's a fantastic way to put it. When can you just stop and smell the roses? Yeah, just, I didn't want to use that phrase because I didn't want to be cliche, but whatever. It's but fine. but it's that it, it exists for that reason. Yeah, I mean, stop and just enjoy, and and take it in, like you said. Um, he did an amazing thing, and to not really allow himself to ever even when they flip to a million, right? Like mm -hmm. everybody else is celebrating and he's just still sitting in his chair. Now, granted that happens in the movie right after Eduardo is, you know, leaves the room. And I think he's got some guilt attached to him, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree, wholeheartedly agree. And I, and what I love about this film is that it brings those things up and it gives us reason to talk about those things. And, so it's not just a movie that's entertaining. It's that's what that's one of the things that elevates it to greatness to me. You know what I mean? Is it gives us mm -hmm. things to pull out. We can talk about it with our kids. We can talk about it with our family. And it's PG thirteen. It's 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 clean. It's not it's not unnecessarily R either, which I love. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I mentioned earlier that in our opening that this is an Oscar award winning film. Should have been one... best picture, by the way. <clears throat> okay, well, but yeah, that's that's definitely debatable. That's why I would say why we. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, but the the category that stands out did it win best original screenplay or best adapted screenplay? Or I, I believe it won for screenplay. Yes. Okay, but it also won. This is interesting because we've had this conversation on social media. It won for best original score. Isn't that correct? It sure did. And uh, I believe I don't remember who it was, but somebody pointed out that it was up against Inception, and they don't understand how that happened. And you have definitely been championing this the score. I enjoy it. I think Trent Reznor is great in this. I mean, as a as a score, it's nice to listen to. It's very much something that I would put on as I'm as I'm coding, as I'm designing. So I'm you know connecting there. But I'd like to ask you, what is it about this music that elevated it to Oscar award winning status? Because you definitely agree with that, and I'd like to I'd like to know why. I do. And I can tell you, so I have taken to, again, doing more homework and trying to be able to back up my opinions. When you start getting people responding to you on Twitter as a podcaster uh, or in a Facebook group <laughs> and you can no longer get away with just saying, but it's because it is, <laughs> you have to actually have a reason for things. Um, and so what I did, Patrick, is, you know, I'd always kind of felt this score was perfect 
but I couldn't really put into words why. So the first thing I did is I went back and I re-listened to it the other day. And I listened to it all the way through in the car from the start to the finish. And then back to back, I put on the Inception score, which is a phenomenal score that we both agree and love very, very much. Hans Zimmer, fantastic work. And it was, I believe, uh, up for the Oscar as well. And that's usually the one that people would say, you know, if there was a conflict, it would be, hey, Inception should have won this. Mm -hmm. Well, what I found is actually kind of different than what you just said. I actually prefer, if I'm listening in the car, to Inception. If I want to just listen to a score in the in my vehicle or at home, I just want to put one on in the background in my house. I think the majority of the time I'm going to want to listen to Inception. But what I think that is amazing about Trent Reznor's industrial rock synthy score is that it is perfect from the opening scene for this movie. The the main theme kicks in you know, and it's, it's so kind of soft and it's got, just got the dings in there. Um, and it slowly starts to transition into this more rocking sound, this more synthetic type stuff when, or synthesized stuff when he's doing the coding and such. And frankly, I think that it just adds to the emotional. And I think the main theme adds the emotional investment in scenes where we see Mark and Erica talking, um, where we're trying to feel about something about a character, where emotions are trying to be driven. I think that The Rock gets us excited about what we see happening on the screen, and it gets us amped up. And I think that it's a score that... Its challenge is that it has to do all of this in a film that doesn't have any action. You pointed this out earlier. This is a dialogue-driven movie. It is a bunch of people, for the most part, sitting around talking to each other. (laughs) Is really what it is. And so, to me, this score changes everything because it sets the mood completely all on its own. And so I think that that's personally why I find it so special is because from the opening of the movie to the end of the movie, the music is very much tied to every different scene that I see. And when I see a scene, I think about that music in every single scene and it elevates those scenes because otherwise they would just be simple and plain. And instead of that action or movement of character, the music does all of those things for us, even though it's just two people sitting there moving their mouths. And so that's, that's why I think it's special. And that's why I think it's Oscar worthy is because it's great music but because of how it's used in this film and what it does for a biopic, that's not something I've ever seen a biopic really do. I think that's for me why it becomes the Oscar winner. Does that make I sense? Can, yeah, I can I can agree with a lot of that. I, I I enjoyed it enough to buy the soundtrack when I think I had seen it originally. And Trent Reznor is a guy that you know he's known for. nine inch nails and he comes out and does this so it was very surprising to hear the diversity of a score like this i would say that what it has the ability to do is in some ways translate the scene uh, to to a point of saying that if we have dialogue 
we can get we we are able to interpret it better through the music in terms of the energy if it's a piano piece like for, for instance I, I i don't know why i was drawn to this but i loved his use of that simple piano as mark is running from the pub to his dorm room in his flip-flops <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Very simple, very quiet. I mean, it's a quiet winter night on the Harvard campus. And then you contrast that with his face mash experience, that whole event that took place, and the energy is completely different. It's do 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 you know, whatever. I can't remember specifically what it was, but it's not that. It's not that piano thing. Right, exactly. And it it draws you into the emotional core of of these characters and and i think that's where its strength is whereas a movie like inception i think it accents those scenes but those scenes could have been done with or without the music i think that if if we i'd be interested to see these scenes those two in particular without the music to see if they have any kind of emotional difference i think they would i think that they wouldn't have evoked the same kind of emotional response for me if they hadn't, if that music hadn't been there, if they would have just been just walking, running through, through the campus in your flip flops and, you know, taking down the campus servers, you know, <laughs> just, I don't know if it would be as interesting. It may not, but I don't think it would have nearly been as emotional and emotionally connective had that music not been there. So I, I can definitely relate to that and agree with that. Good. Well, I'm glad that you <laughs> see it my way. Well, it keeps the podcast alive and we can agree, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> one final thing before we get into our connecting point, I wanted to, to ask this question. Do you think by the end of the film there is any resolution with Mark as a character? Oh. I mean, we see him refreshing Erica's page, but we don't know if they're ever, quote, friends. And so I want I think that ambiguity leaves that question open to ask. Do you see any resolution with him? If so, what ways? Or if not, what ways? Oh gosh, um, that's deep. that might be a loaded question. Yeah, well, it's, yeah, we leave it on a deep one, then we go into a connecting point. Um, so here's, I think Mark goes on an arc where arc mark a mark arc. Yes, I'm, oh my <laughs> gosh, oh my goodness gracious. There's the levity we need. Um, uh, yeah. Um, where by the end of the film, he's come back full circle to where maybe he started off at the beginning, but not. So he started off at the beginning really needing, like we said, to be a part of something. And I think he has come full circle at the end of the movie. And what we what we see with him hitting refresh, refresh, refresh is that I think he understands that he needs human community and it's and i find it very ironic because i don't think mark is looking for a social media connection with erica right i think mark is looking for a real life connection with erica and i think that's the irony of the ending of this movie because that's what he wants to bring this back to it now right he no longer wants to be with erica just as a side piece that's part of like his status because he wants to be a part of the the final club or he wants to be part of this company 
these groups, he now wants to be part of a singular type of relationship, a one-on-one. Like That's where he's... And I think going through his experiences, losing his friendship with Eduardo, and having that play out the way it does informs that choice in the ending to where he's come back and now realizes, oh my gosh, that's something I need in my life, and she is the focal point for him. So that's how I see his story ending. Does that answer the question? It does. And I think you're spot on in that, in that assessment. And I'm going to, I'm going to plug a, 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 a YouTube channel called how it should have ended. Several of our listeners might be familiar with this. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a channel. I don't, I don't know who the guy is behind. I'd love to get him on the show because he seems like a really, uh, just a really fun guy to, uh, to interact with. But it's a it's a series of animated clips that really just kind of tell you a a what if story like here's how Batman v Superman should have ended and it's usually done with a comedic type twist on it and uh, I remember sending this to you earlier in the week saying hey you need to watch this after you watch the social network but this was interesting because I watched this and the ending of this was more in line with what I think you're saying and what I agree with that Instead, you know, it shows Mark punching the keyboard and refreshing his page, and then he says, wait, this is dumb. And so he picks up the phone, and he actually calls Erica, and he goes, Erica, hey, it's Mark. I just wanted to say, I'm sorry. And <laughs> in the midst of the humor that is this web series, there's a sense of truth in that, mm-hmm. that I think he wants to create resolution not by being her friend on Facebook, but by saying, listen, you, I was wrong. I'm sorry. I, I, I was an a-hole and I'm, I'm incredibly sorry that I did this. I'm glad that it's left ambiguous because by him just punching this refresh button, we really don't know what he wants. I mean, we can assume that he wants to connect with her in real life because but we could also assume based on our history with Facebook as a social network that really we're okay with just staying behind a computer screen and I think that's what Fincher's trying to get across is it could go one way it could go the other and by leaving it that way we are we are left having that kind of conversation afterwards by saying well, what is real friendship does it mean just connecting on social media? You and I would obviously say, no, it's not just that. It's face-to-face conversation. It's phone calls. It's creating vulnerability between two people uh, where stuff gets shared. But it starts with that. It starts with a connection that's easy to manage. It starts with a friend request that says, hey, I haven't seen you in years. What's going on? Facebook and any social media gives you that context to be able to reconnect with someone. And so in some ways... We are given the conclusion, but I like the ambiguity of that because we really don't know. I honestly think he has changed. I think that the line that he's, you know, the line that Erica says about him being that, being an a-hole, coupled with the line at the very end by the, I guess, the assistant DA that says, you're not that, you're just trying really hard to be, I think gives us kind of a picture that we're, you know, and a conclusion that we can draw from. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's, and I also think it's, it's, it's just a great ending because I think it is too. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about Facebook. We're talking about a social media site and Mark doesn't have all Erica's number anymore. She's not going to talk to him. 
The only way he can connect with her is what? By finding her on Facebook. So it's but, it's a realistic <laughs> scenario, right? And here's, here's a small thing that I have an issue with. If she has that kind of just problem with him, if they have this kind of broken relationship, wouldn't that just <laughs> why would she have a Facebook account? <laughs> oh, because I don't think that that would stop her from having a Facebook account. That's that's crazy talk. Okay. Well, you're probably right. <laughs> <laughs> As always, Aaron's right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's move into our connecting points before we finish out uh, this episode. Wanted to find out what what moment of possibly many, since you champion this film as you do, might uh, might be your connecting point. Where did you actually resonate the the deepest with in this film? Well, you might be able to guess this uh, if you think hard about the fact that I said that the thing that gets me going in movies the most is the great writing and <laughs> Aaron Aaron Sorkin being Aaron Sorkin. And there is nowhere in this film that that is more perfectly shown and on display than in the opening scene. And I think for me, it is one of the greatest opening scenes I've ever seen. And, and, and it's so simple. It's two people sitting across from a table talking to each other. <laughs> All it is, but the dialogue and the character development that takes place in this conversation, this back and forth between Erica and Mark is just stunning to me. I am riveted. My attention is completely on them. Just listening to them talk, listening to them argue, right? Listening to them try and rationalize things for each other. Um, I love it. And I think that it it gives us a great snapshot right away of who the character of Mark Zuckerberg is going to be going forward. So we get all we need to know. We don't need exposition. We don't need a prologue that says, well, in Mark's early years in MIT, yeah. this is, <laughs> you know what I mean? You know what I mean? Like, it's all right here. It, it tells us how he's going to have a lack of social awareness, how he's going to be kind of self-centered and one-minded when it comes to his future in Facebook. It shows us that he has, an, I, I would almost say, a lack of respect for women, which is kind of how it led to face mash in the, in the beginning. And I think that ties to his, his lack of social awareness. Honestly, I don't know that Mark is a terrible person. Um, although Erica does, she says a great quote in the midst of this conversation where she says, you're probably going to be a very successful computer person, but you're going to go through life <laughs> thinking that girls don't like you because you're a nerd. And I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that that won't be true. It'll be because you're an a-hole. And, uh, and I love that quote being at the very beginning of the movie, juxtaposed, juxtaposed, juxtaposed with yeah. the quote that you just mentioned from the DA mm-hmm. at the very end of the movie saying, you're not an a-hole Mark. I think it's fantastic writing. Gosh, dude, I cannot Sorkin is like my spirit animal. I just, I love him so much. <laughs> he is so good. But like the fact that literally one of the very last lines of the film is you're not an a-hole. And one of the, the main lines in the very first conversation is you are an a-hole. Right. Um, right. So I, I think that it truly sets the stage so much for everything that we're going to get um, going forward. And, and that's why I have no problem with the creation of her character. Because in doing so, they use that 
inserted person, that redacted name, to tell us so much about what we're going to see and, and give us the setting for everything. Um, and I just, I absolutely love it, man. I, I could watch that opening scene on repeat over and over and over. And for a movie that is so dialogue driven and so much about just people and, and not a, a non-action story for me to be completely invested from the drop because of a conversation over a table in a bar. Mm -hmm. I think that that's a stunning accomplishment. Yeah, my first note when I was uh, watching this film for our for our episode was that opening conversation with Erica sets a great tone for the pacing and overall, quote, speed of the movie. Call caps, lots of conversations, all caps, this is where Sorkin shines. Nice. And, and I'm not just, surprised. It's just, it's just great. And I remember I'm a big fan of the West Wing, as I mentioned before. I was watching some of the bonus stuff as I was going through the DVDs. And you have to really be a fantastic actor to be able to deliver those lines in a way that are they're meant to be delivered. I mean, it takes a lot of acting chops to be able to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, and keep that emotional tone to keep all that stuff intact. Otherwise, because you could flub those lines. I would flub those lines. It would take me 15 to 20,000 takes to, to actually get those lines down. And so credit to all the actors that were faced with the you know the the task of having to say all the stuff that Sorkin wrote down. Uh, listeners, if you're out there and you're feeling generous, the Masterclass by Aaron Sorkin, you can gift that to me at any point if you'd like. I just you know you'd become one of my best at least online friends. And uh, so I'm just throwing it out there in case you're feeling you're feeling you're feeling generous. So. It is, but great well, connecting point, Aaron. Thank you. What about yours, man? What did you uh, land on for the most connective moment for you? I had a I had a real hard time picking one. It wasn't that I had tons of them, and, and it wasn't there weren't any, but it was it just I think because everything was just right there, there wasn't something that really stood out. But I think you mentioned your mention of the music earlier is what solidified the moment for me. I would say. It was the dinner conversation with Sean Parker as Eduardo is telling the story through his deposition. You know, from a technical standpoint, everything that I really enjoyed about the film was included in this particular scene. The dialogue, as we mentioned, the way the music worked in particular, that kind of revving up techno-ish rock type thing, combined with these slow motion shots of Sean talking and them, you know, uh, tipping their glasses to each other, celebrating, seeing Eduardo's face, being like, what is going on here? Um, just those cuts back and forth from the present day to the dinner. But from an emotional standpoint, this is where I felt like Eduardo, like things were for the first time not going the way they should. Like he was losing his value of being part of the company. This is where I think the wheels started to fall off for him. Up until that point, I think he felt like he was an equal partner. I think he felt like he was incredibly valued, like he was significant. And this is where the power started to really start slipping from him, not necessarily to Sean, although that ended up kind of happening, but he started losing control. And it's interesting because I don't necessarily think that the things Sean was pitching and the way he was doing it were wrong. I just think it's important to have, I mean, I actually think it's important to have a visionary like him when you're creating something. 
you have people that can envision something and then you have people that can execute. And that's what Sean literally and figuratively brought to the table. I mean, the fact that the scene ended with him saying, uh, Eduardo saying, and then he, you know, he, he added the biggest contribution to date. He goes, drop the the, just Facebook. It's clean. And then he just walks away. And then the music ends. Fantastic way to end it because you get so much from that about how powerful Sean is. And I think because of his influence, the conversation really signified the beginning of the end for Eduardo, uh, particularly his importance in the company. And to quote Eduardo specifically, from then on, it really was a, quote, Seanathon. <laughs> it was really all about Sean and how he was able to use the puppet strings on, on Mark. I don't think he would have made some decisions that he did without without Sean's influence. Um and, you know, that's when I really felt sorry for Eduardo at that point. So this is the scene where Eduardo is there, where Sean says, you know, what's cool. Not a million dollars, a billion dollars. Is that is that <laughs> yeah. this scene or is that's this the, the club scene? scene? OK, yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, this isn't the what I call the it's not the Goonies scene with the techno that's really almost too loud for the dialogue. No, I was going to bring that up because I thought that was the scene you were talking about for a second. I, I was going to tell you how that scene is phenomenal to me because of the way it's shot. And I think it, in hindsight, I love that scene. Mm -hmm. Initially, I actually reached for the remote because it's like, is something wrong with my TV? Like, why is my volume all of a sudden gone? Um, (laughs) But I love it. I love it in hindsight. It's another aspect of the technical filmmaking brilliance of this. We didn't really talk about that much, but there's so much that, you know, when I say the music is perfect throughout, that's one of the things I'm talking about. It's Mm. used so just expertly and uniquely to set the scenes. Um, Mm -hmm. And that club scene is one of those, but yeah, this dinner scene is, is so good. And you're right. It, it is definitely an emotionally powerful one because you can feel it. You can feel Eduardo losing his grip. You can, he's getting, he's starting to lash out. He's starting to get frustrated. And, and, and I think what's really hard is you see Jesse Eisenberg as Mark in the background of the scene and the whole time he's nodding going, yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's what I've been saying. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And, and the camera <laughs> is focused on Eduardo and Sean, right. As Sean mm-hmm. is explaining his visions and, uh, and he's just like in the background, like just like doing all these facial hand motions and just like completely in agreement. And you can see Eduardo. <laughs> you can, you can visibly feel like you said, yeah. Eduardo losing his grip and realizing this is going to go a bad direction for me. And so, yeah, yeah, man, that's, that's a fantastic choice. Yeah. It's a great scene. Um, it, in particular, I, I think it drew going back to the, how it should have ended. There's a great little parody of that where <laughs> Sean Parker goes, yeah, you know, what's cool. Not a million dollars. Yeah, I know. A I billion know. fragilian bazillion dollars. Oh, anyway, gosh. I'm sorry. I, it's so funny. <laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> Just, I love, I love, I love that, that episode. Anyway, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, that being said, as I as I lose it here, um, if you want to continue the conversation with us, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us uh, in our Facebook group, as we've mentioned several times. We're at facebook.com slash feelingfilm, and you can get to the group from there. 
You can also go to our website and find it there along with past episodes and really great writing from our contributors that have come on board and provided lots of great material to to read. Uh, you can check out um, lots of other stuff on the website, including our show next door, Feeling Film Plus. We've got some new episodes that dropped last week, one by, uh, by Aaron and our contributor Don from uh, their initial kind of raw reactions from It Comes at Night. And also for myself and my friend Francisco, as we break down the King of Kong documentary. So check that out when you get the chance. Love for, for you guys to, to, to leave us a review on iTunes for either one of our shows. We'd love to hear your feedback on that. If you want to get a hold of me specifically and continue the conversation about this or any other thing that we've talked about, you can find me at Shoeless Patch, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S-P-A-T-C-H. I'm on the big three, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you. Aaron, we'll let you. Well, since you mentioned those amazing contributors that we have, Jeremy doing his weekly Feelin' TV column, Steve with all kinds of features here and there um, on various films, and then Don and his What We've Learned uh, Each Week column, Don is actually going to be joining us uh, on a main episode for the first time, I believe, uh, next week when we cover For Father's Day, Field of Dreams. So... I'm excited about that one, Patrick. I have not watched that film since my childhood. I know that it is an absolute favorite of yours. Yes. So I'm crossing my fingers and really hoping that it holds up for me. Um, me too. Also coming next week, we'll have a quick spoiler-free re- feeling it review of Cars 3 out um, a few days before the movie drops. So check that one out to get our opinion on whether or not you should go see it. Uh, we will have seen it by then and be able to tell you what we thought. Lastly, if you want to catch up with me on social media, you can always do that by finding me at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E. That's on Twitter, the Gram, and Facebook. Yes, I did, Patrick. Yes, I did. <laughs> and I'm also and very, you me. I'm also very active in uh, our Facebook group as well, which is why we continue to try and direct you there because it's so much fun. So if you've got one, if you've got a Facebook, and we're talking about the social network, so there's really no better time to come join our facebook group than than the present right absolutely if we're going to be if we're going to be meta this is the time to be meta right i I completely (laughs) agree so all right aaron thanks for uh, another great conversation guys thanks for listening and we'll see you next time in the meantime stay positive and keep feeling